happy Sunday, Coastway Church. It is great to see you today. And I just want to uh, let you know a little bit about what we have to look forward to from here is we're going to be uh, receiving communion as a church uh, family today. Uh, last week we celebrated with Tyler, Nicole, and John's baptisms. And uh, really, what, what is baptism? Baptism is a sign of beginning faith. And communion, a way to think about it, is it's a sign of continuing faith. It's like if, if Jesus like, has proposed to you to make the highest and greatest commitment uh, that's wor- he's worthy and he's worth it, and you say, yes, I do, that's baptism. Uh, but then you say, hey, yes, I still do, that's communion. And so we're going to be walking in the I still do commitment through communion at the end of our time together uh, today, and it's, it's going to be special. Uh, but here's, here's where we're at. Why don't you go ahead, why don't you open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. And if you're new, here's what you need to know. We have been walking verse by verse, line by line, turn by turn, through Paul's letter to the Galatians. And the whole idea is uh, we've been set free to live free. And we're learning what it looks like to to live in the liberty purchased uh, by Jesus on the cross and through the resurrection. And uh, let me just go ahead and tell you a little bit. Let me set set up today uh, in Galatians 5 with, uh, with this. A little personal trivia on me. I love fresh peaches. And so I am an absolute, I, I think there's a receipt on the screen, so just, you know, there's a picture to prove it. Uh, the, you know those uh, peach stands on the way in to Myrtle Beach or on the way out? It's like fresh South Carolina peaches. It's like, it gets me every time, gets me every time. And so like, apparently they even have these peach slushies. And so I got one of those. It was delightful. But uh, you see all these signs going in and coming out and uh, it's at some point or another, like we'll usually stop because I just love uh, fresh, fresh peaches. And uh, the reason why I share that with you is because when you think about what does God really love, well, God loves fruit. Uh, one, in, in fact, if you if you were to summarize like the primary metaphor that God uses to describe a blessed and a beautiful and a free life. What is it? It's fruit. Go back to the beginning, Genesis 1, 28. Adam and Eve, God has created man and woman in his beautiful image. He's designed them. He's defined them. And then he says, this is your purpose. It's uh, be fruitful and multiply. And so that was the, like the way that God described what he wanted us to be about. And it's a picture of blessing. It's a picture of 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 freedom, and then you you move forward into John chapter fifteen, verse five. Jesus is around a table with his disciples, um, or he's getting ready to be around a table table with his disciples for the Last Supper. And what he says is, he says, "Hey, listen, listen, guys, I'm the vine; you are the branches. If you remain in me, you're going to bear much what fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing." And then, where is this all headed? Well, you go to Revelation twenty two two, and we see that. What is heaven going to be like? Well, one of the things that heaven's going to be like is there's going to be a delicious fruit tree that brings healing to the nations. We see uh, as is one of the things that God is intentional to put in glory, to put in uh, heaven. And so I just want to invite you just like to consider like what is fruit all about? Well, fruit is intended to be uh, tasted and and enjoyed. Fruit is intended to be something that, and, and I know you guys are tired of looking at this picture. We can take that down. That's probably not the most flattering. Yeah, thank you. So, uh, uh, but fruit is intended to be tasted and enjoyed, right? It's, in, it's not just something, fruit does not exist for the benefit of itself. And here's the, the question that I want to ask you. When was the last time that somebody wanted to take a bite out of your life? And here's what, here's what I mean. It's like, seriously, 
Like, when was the last time somebody looked at the way that you live your life and said, it's so inviting, it's so welcoming, they're so sacrificial, they're so others-focused, that I just wanted to be around them? You know, uh, the opposite is true. Like, the only fruit that eats itself is rotten. And so when we make our lives about ourselves, it's a rotten way to live. Isn't this just a brilliant way to think about beauty? Is to say fresh, ripened fruit for the sake uh, of, of others. And really, what is this whole fruitfulness an- analogy about? Well, well, Jesus would say, Paul would say, the scriptures would say, that it's a, a way for us to respond to the character of Christ by becoming more like him. But it's also a way to reflect the character of Christ so that others can become more like him as, as well. And this brings us to Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26. And Paul is going to show us what it looks like to bear the fruit of Christ-likeness. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to see how the power to live a fruitful life, personally, relationally, emotionally, spiritually, does not come natural for us. In fact, what we need in order to do this is we need a power outside of us to come and to fill us. Uh, We need the Holy Spirit. And here's the good news of the gospel is, uh, yes, it's about the Father planning salvation. Yes, it's about the Son purchasing salvation. But it's also about the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, powering and personalizing salvation for each and every one who looks to Jesus by faith. And so really, here's what I want to show you today, is, is that the, the, what does the gospel do? The gospel frees us from a selfish life to a spirit-filled life. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, and we're going to talk about fruit, and we're going to talk about all the things that are opposed to the Holy Spirit, opposed to this, this fruit, and, and some ways that we can gain some ground and bear this fruit. So take a look with me at Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Here's what Paul says. But I say, when, when he's saying but, he's, he's contrasting. He's saying in contrast to the lies we believe that we can earn it, that we don't need God, here's what he says, walk by the Spirit. Now, who's the Holy Spirit? That's, that's like the million dollar question right now. And if you want, I would say if you want to average, or if you want to confuse the, the, the average cultural Christian, ask this question. Tell me about your relationship with the Holy Spirit. Like well, I don't, I don't, I don't really know. I kind of thought, thought, you know, it is like this abstract force. Have you seen Casper the Friendly Ghost? Kind of like that. You know, he's friendly, he's good. But I don't, I don't really understand him. It's like, no, the the Holy, who is the Holy Spirit? Let's get some clarity right here, where there's confusion. The Holy Spirit is the eternal, the essential, the co-equal, and co-operative third member of the Holy Trinity. And at Coastway Church, we would want you to know that we are Trinitarian worshipers. What does that mean? That means that we worship God three in one, Father, Spirit, Son. And if that makes your head hurt a little bit, just understand so much of the Christian life is embracing mystery. Uh, The mystery of the character of God that we in our finite limitations don't have the capacity to fully comprehend. But there's two ditches to avoid with the Spirit. One is that we would obsess over over the Spirit. And uh, we would basically base our, our relationship with God and our faith off of like this emotional, sensationalistic approach where if I don't feel it, then God's not moving. Where if I'm not crying, God's not moving. Where if we're not running, 
running laps around the, the worship center, and if we're not painting flames around the church van, and if the pastors don't have mullets, then we're not filled with the Holy Spirit. That's not happening, by the way. I'm losing my hair, and John's a little bit ahead of me. So uh, no, no, no mullets, those Coastway pastors. It's, it's not happening. But we obsess over the Spirit, right? But then what else would happen is that we would obscure the Holy Spirit, and we would never talk about Him that we would never personalize what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to walk with Him, as Paul says. So notice that word. What should we know? Walk. That's what we should know. If someone invites you to go for a walk, understand, that's a relational invitation. That's not a transaction. That's not something cold and corporate. That is highly relational. And so think about this. Who are you walking with? I would, I would suggest that the people that you're walking with closely are going to carry the most weight in your life. And so part of what Paul's saying right here is the Holy Spirit is to carry the greatest weight in our life, His will, His ways. And uh, there's actually a really, a really helpful connection. You see, the, the whole Bible is unified. That's what you have to understand. It doesn't contradict itself. It's internally consistent, and it, it's, it's uh, from God. It's about Jesus, and it's for us. But one of the connections that we see in the Old Testament is we see the Holy Spirit being promised. Jesus comes and he, he promises the Spirit. But in the Old Testament, there was a prophet named Isaiah. And this is Isaiah 30, 21. And I want to show this to you. I, I want you to see what the prophet says. He says, whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears shall hear a voice behind you. That's an important phrase. A voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. So that this phrase, a voice behind you, showing the way, it brings up a really needed connection about the Holy Spirit and the practical way that He leads and guides and relates to us through everyday life. Um, th- this is basically a summary of, of how the Holy Spirit walks with us and guides us. Um, Jesus said He will be with us always. How does that practically possible? Well, the Holy Spirit. And I want you to think about this. What was the first post-resurrection? Uh, appearance of Jesus to one of his disciples. So he's conquered sin, he's conquered death, and he has resurrected, and he appears to who, when, where? To Mary Magdalene. And Mary basically went to uh, honor honor Jesus, to visit his grave. She saw that the stone had been rolled away. Uh, there was no body, and she despaired. She was like, they have taken the body of my Lord. And then she encounters a man in, in, in the garden and she doesn't recognize him, it's Jesus. And what, what she, she starts to interact a little bit, he asks some questions. And here, this is really interesting in a, con- a connection to Isaiah 30, 21, um, and this is actually where we see Scripture being fulfilled, is Mary in that moment, she turns her back to Jesus, and she starts weeping. But then here's what Jesus does, and it's remarkable, and it's what he does with us, and this is when it becomes personal, is he, he says one word over the shoulder of Mary, and it's this, Mary, and she turns from having her back to Jesus, weeping, turning to face Jesus through that voice that was behind her, recognizing that it was Jesus, and she goes from weeping to rejoicing. This is what inspired the the, uh, great hymn in the garden that says, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own, and the joy we share as we tarry there. None other has ever known. Here's what you need to know about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is Jesus' voice behind you calling your name. Personalizing the gospel. 
revealing to you the identity of Jesus that was previously veiled to you. He speaks to our hearts, not just from behind us, but from within us. In the moments when you feel defeated and you feel like there is no hope, the Holy Spirit beckons to our heart. Jesus has won the victory, and in Him you're more than a conqueror. I know it's hard, but we're headed We're headed home. <laughs> it, and whenever you uh, despair and, and, and you find yourself in a place uh, to where maybe you're doubting, the Holy Spirit is over your shoulder from within you saying, hey, listen, God's big enough to deal with your doubts. Pick them up and follow, follow Jesus anyway. Or maybe you're being disobedient in some area and just like flat out disobeying like what God wants for your life. And the Holy Spirit uh, beckons in your heart and says, hey, listen, you can't outsend the cross. And Jesus is ready to, to wash you and to welcome you home new and afresh. Check out verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So first he says, walk with the Spirit. That's relational language, right? What does it communicate? Well, it communicates time. If you go for a walk, you're not in a hurry. If you, if you go for a walk, then you've obviously got a little bit of time that you're going to spend. But then he says this, and this is interesting, be led by the Spirit, also very, very relational. And whereas walk communicates time, led communicates trust. And, and what he says is he says instead of being under law, basically, and what, what under law means, I believe that I can earn my salvation. I believe that I don't really need God. What he says is, he says, be led by the Spirit. You, you can't do uh, both. And so uh, here's, here's a way to think about it. Uh, elsewhere, uh, Paul says in Ephesians 5, 18, do not get drunk with, with alcohol, uh, but in, uh, which leads to wild, reckless living, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is actually a brilliant way to think about what the Spirit does, is actually to compare it to the influence of alcohol. So um, what, why do, have you ever wondered, like, why do, why do we call liquor spirits? What, why, why do we call that? That's because there, there is something outside of us that we bring inside of us that we put ourselves under and we say, I want to be controlled. I, I want to be changed. I don't really want to, I'm not comfortable with who I am, so I want something foreign to come in and, and, and invade my system and make me somebody different. And so you're under the influence of alcohol. You've heard this? So, and, and there's several reasons why this happens. Sometimes just because we're, we're bored with our life. We don't like who we are. We want something to enchant us. We want something to enliven us. And so we think that alcohol is going to be the answer. Uh, I mean, uh, just think about it. I mean, who's gotten drunk recently? I mean, just kidding, kidding. Please don't, please don't. <laughs> saw some hands start to go up. <laughs> it's like, it's, okay, so uh, here's, here's a way to think about it. Uh, don't do that. Um, you, the, the way that alcohol will influence you negatively, some of you, you know exactly what this is like. The Holy Spirit will influence you positively. And you know when that alcohol comes in and it turns you into somebody else where you basically you wake up the next day and you have things that you need to repent of and apologize for and you're ashamed of, well, the Spirit takes possession of your life and comes in and now you do things that are worth celebrating. And that's what Paul's saying, get at this. So if we were to uh, go through, like, what are the things that, like, need to change in your life? What are the things that I need God to come in and change in my life? You would probably have a list, right? Well, Paul's about to give us a list. Take a look at verse 19. He says, now the works of the flesh, the things that the Holy Spirit needs to come in and wants to come in and change in your life. That's the way to think about it. They are evident. So Paul's about to give us a list of sins. 
and he calls them the works of the flesh. And what he's going to do is he's going to give us four buckets of brokenness. So he organizes, organizes our sin, sin nature, um, our, our brokenness into kind of four categories. And the first one that he gives us is sexual sin. Sexual, disordered sexual desires. Take a look at verse 19. Let's keep going. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality. All right, so what is this? Well, this is, this is talking about um, engaging in sexual uh, activity outside the, the loving limits and the safe harbors of a committed marriage covenant. And, and let's, let's be real. This is popularized, right? This is normalized. This has been totally destigmatized in our modern moment in our post-Christian society. Uh, a few of the allies in the advocacy for the normalization and the popularization of sexual immorality would be uh, some dating apps. And before I go here, I just want to say, like, it, I, I, this is not to vilify dating apps. Some of you, you honestly met your spouse on a dating app. Praise God. That's, that's beautiful. It's awesome. But these, these apps are becoming, if you start looking at some of the research and the way that these apps are being used, um, take, for example, the, the, the app Tinder. On the app Tinder, if you start reading the, the user's experience with, um, with the app Tinder, what they're saying, particularly women, is users are now viewed more as hookup options than they are actual people. They're basically people to be used instead of people to be loved. And so how does it, how does it happen? Well, there's a lot of things that happen, but this is one thing that's, uh, that, that is contributing to it. Another is maybe, maybe you've heard of, heard of the app called Ashley Madison. And basically, the whole philosophy of this app is life is short, have an affair. And what it does is it provides, apparently, some safe and secure way for you to cheat on your spouse. And so the uh, chief strategy officer of Ashley Madison, uh, in an interview, his name is Paul Keeble, he said that Ashley Madison services one million affairs per month. It's an app with a philosophy, life is short, have an affair. And we wonder, like, how do we, how do we get to a place to where like the things that are traditional, the things that were, you know, decades ago viewed as like kind of <laughs> off, off limits, now it's become something that we celebrate. Well, this is contributing to it. Next, Paul says impurity. So impurity is unnatural sexual desires. And what is this? To be clear, this includes any outright departure from the male and female binary, which God designed, which God defined, and he delivered to us as a gift that's very good. This is any outright departure from the historic, uh, the historic uh, Christian position on marriage. One man, one woman in a covenant, uh, uh, lifelong heterosexual uh, commitment. And here's, here's just the air that we breathe. Um, it, it's been popularized and normalized to reject, uh, actually to embrace what Paul calls impurity in, in our modern moment by, by secular culture. Uh, because what happens is, you know, various groups, various people, uh, various voices, various platforms will treat the historic Christian view as an option at best, but more frequently uh, oppressive at worst. And this is what we see. But then Paul says, sensuality. Okay, what is sensuality? Well, sensuality is uncontrolled sexuality. So here's, here's a way to think about it. Think purely impulsive Animal-like urges such as rape, pedophilia, prostitution, and 
pretty much generally speaking, pornography. We see this popularized and normalized. We even see it celebrated, actually. And I'll give you one of the more disturbing recent examples is the Netflix series Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story. Did you know, and if you don't know who Jeffrey Dahmer is, basically he was a serial killer in the 70s, 80s, um, late 90s, uh, and he ended up abducting 17 male victims back to his apartment in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, having sex with them and mutilating them. And here's what you need to know about this next this Netflix series. Some of you have watched it, and this is this is to disciple you. This is not to to shame shame you if you've watched it. It's just like think about it, like think about what it is. Um, but culture has basically taken this hook, line, and sinker, and it was the number one most watched Netflix series in its first week in all of Netflix history. <laughs> one hundred ninety six million viewers. Um, it's made the top 10 of all time uh, Netflix series. And what is, it, what is it all about? It's all about what happens when you give yourself to sensuality. Uh, another example of this would be Fifty Shades of Grey, uh, which is the equivalent of mommy porn. And right about the time, it's, it's ironic the way that secular society contradicts itself. Right about the time that women who were abuse victims were coming out and hashtagging Me Too, they were also going to the movies to watch Fifty Shades of Grey. And 35 million picked up copies of the Fifty Shades of Grey series, which is about sexual misogyny, male dominance, sexual violence, sexual abuse, and we're looking to this as forms of entertainment. But then, you, like, you think about um, pornography, and here's, here's something to know. Um, the number one targeted demographic for online pornography is between the ages of 12 and 17. And the number one word that's being used to search pornography that's associated with this is the word teen. Now, none of us would sit on the other side of this intel and say that's good. None of us would say that, that that's God's design, and yet this is the air that we breathe. And I want to give some clarity amidst all the chaos, the confusion. At Coastway Church, what are we about? Well, we hold to the historic Christian view on human sexuality. We hold to it unapologetically. We hold to it humbly. We hold to it gracefully. And here it is. It's that sex is a gift from God to be enjoyed within the loving limits of a lifelong heterosexual marriage. Let me talk about humility and let me talk about hope around this. Here's the humility. We're all sexual sinners. All of us. Homosexual, heterosexual, uh, whatever. Uh, all of us are sexual sinners, and so we repent of all sexual sin. That's our philosophy. That's how we think about this. We're not going to stigmatize one particular sexual sin above others, although not all have the same consequences relationally, physically. That is just a, 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 a fact. Um, we, we are all sexual sinners, and we repent of all sexual sin. But that's the humility. That's how we think about it. Here's the hope. Because we hear, what we really need in all this is hope, right? We need hope. Because um, some would like hear this and think, well, I'm a sexual failure. Like, I would blush if I started indexing my sexual history or my sexual past or my disordered desires and passions that I wouldn't want anybody to know about, that I try to keep in the shadows. And here's what you need to know, is that Jesus Christ took your sexual past. He took your sexual present. He took your sexual future into himself on the cross and in your place so that he could credit his purity to you by faith in, in him alone. And what this means is that no matter how riddled with 
uh, with, with sexuality, your past may be, is that you're, you can be washed. You can be washed clean. And, and you, you are welcomed into the household of faith. As if you, you behaved and performed just like Jesus did. And you are no less wanted because of any of those decisions that you have made. And the Spirit's role in all this is to be the personal voice who assures us of God's cleansing grace. And Paul is saying, here's what Paul is saying. He's saying the best way to think about all this is to return. Not reject, not resist, not debate. God's vision for sex. And that's an act of self-giving love within the safe harbors of a whole life marriage commitment. Uh, Philosopher Jean Venier uh, said this, We all have to choose between two ways of being crazy. The foolishness of the gospel and the nonsense values of our world. So what kind of crazy do you want to be? Uh, The second type of sin that Paul talks about, sexual sins, then there's spiritual sins. Uh, Verse 20 continues, there is idolatry. That's when you take a good thing and you make it a God thing. You take something like sports, you take something like kids, you take something like your career, you take something like your marriage, you take something like your ambitions, uh, you take something like just like physical fitness, and what you do is you make it the sun in the solar system of your life, and it's the organizing principle that has since replaced God. But Jesus said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will orbit properly. Then your life will be properly ordered. Then you can bear the fruit of a blessed and beautiful life. So idolatry stands in the way of this. Then there is sorcery, um, actually not as abstract uh, as you may think. It's, it's trying to control the spiritual world. That's what sorcery is, yes. But it includes witchcraft, occult practices, uh, consulting psychics, astrology and, and and tarot cards and so forth but you know on a on a super practical level this is the sin of trying to control or manipulate god in some way so what happens is you you tug on or you toy with these very real spiritual realities do ghosts exist not according to scripture they don't angels and demons exist yeah yeah the the, the invisible spirits of of, of the war that's being waged in the invisible realm exists. And yes, you can step into uh, settings where more of those realities feel stronger and we confuse it with ghosts or this place is haunted. No, that's like just, just demons and darkness. That's what that is. And, and, and we, we, we toy with it. We, we, we look to it as entertainment. When in reality, what it does is it gives us a foothold for, for the devil to, to indoctrinate and insubordinate the work of God in our lives. This is sorcery. And, and what it does is it goes hand in glove with idolatry, so you see the two paired together. Do you see it? So those are spiritual sins. Next, it's social sins. Social sins. Verse uh, 20 continues. Enmity, that's settled hatred, hostility toward a person. Strife. <laughs> this is being argumentative. This is picking fights. Go to Facebook, you'll see it. Uh, scroll through the comments on anything political, you'll see it. Be alive in 2023, you'll see it. Be alive around the midterms, yeah, you, you see it. Then there's jealousy. The inability to enjoy another's success. That's what jealousy is. Uh, it's ugly, it's not born of God. Uh, fits of anger, these are outbursts that break peace. See Highway 501. Then there are rivalries. Competitiveness that breeds disdain. See most college football fans. Dissensions, 
This is divisions between people. Uh, if you want to see this in vivid color, go to TJ Maxx or Home Goods uh, on a Saturday about 12 o'clock and just look at a husband and wife interacting. It's not beautiful. <laughs> it's real. Divisions. Two warring groups. Dogs and cats. Democrats and Republicans. Verse 21. Envy. You want what others have. This is, this is it. You want what others have. So, so whether it be the sex appeal, whether it be the status, whether it be the stuff, if they got it, man, you're not okay with you not having it. And it's just, it, it really creates an ugly heart, doesn't it? You see that in your own heart, and you're like, oh, I kind of, I just drift that way, but it's not pretty. So we have sexual sins, we have spiritual sins, we have social sins, uh, but then uh, we continue in verse 21, and we see substance sins. Verse 21, drunkenness. So basically, let me just give some clarity right here. The Bible does not condemn the consumption of alcohol outright. It doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, Jesus did turn water into wine. Uh, later on, Paul would say to Timothy, his protege, hey, drink a little wine. It's good for your stomach for medicinal purposes, possibly even for some soothing, soothing purposes, for some health purposes. Um, but uh, Proverbs also says, wine is a mocker, beer is a brawler. He who is led astray by them is not wise. And so it takes wisdom right here to navigate this. So uh, the, what is the lie of license? We talked about this last week. What does it do? It says you can, you can drink too much and not have to change. And may, maybe that's you. Maybe, maybe you're drinking too much, if, if we're being honest. And what Paul's saying right here is that's not going to help you be filled with the Spirit. That's a contrary influence. But it's not just alcohol. It's self-medicating. It's, it's food. It's eating too much. It's, it's, it's drugs. Uh, that, that you are abusing or using in some way that's unhealthy. And then, this is, this is just kind of an awkward thing to include, but let me just tell you what it is. It's orgies. Okay, and don't think, don't think sexual orgies. Um, what this word actually means is um, a wild drinking party. Ever been to one of those? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> okay, see, basically, I mean, see the college campus, right? See most public universities uh, known for... Known for um, Orgies. Verse 21 continues, and, and things like these. Okay, I love that Paul put this here. Let me tell you why. Because this is the junk drawer for the hall pass people who say, well, you didn't put my sin on that list. I'm, I'm out of here. Like, I'm good. I don't need to, I don't need to worry about this. Um, but basically, you know, somebody might say, well, illegal gambling is not on there. Or uh, speeding is not on there. Or uh, lying is not on there. It, you know, what I watch or what I listen to, that's not on there. And Paul's just saying, no, 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 that's not what we're talking about. You're, you're, you're not thinking about this the right way. It's anything like this. And then he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is very important for us to understand, Coastway. Paul is warning that not everyone goes to heaven. And what do we say when someone we love dies? They're in a better place. Okay, how do you know that? I mean, I'm not, I'm not, not trying to be cold or, or insensitive, but how do you know that? Like, how often did they speak of repentance? How often did they long for heaven and to be with Jesus? How much time did they spend practically just opening up the Bible and treasuring and savoring the words of Christ uh, above the words of culture? And as I've been thinking about this, um, yeah, I've been a Christian, I was... I was born again at the age of 19 in my dorm room at Pfeiffer University. And uh, I've been reading the Bible regularly. I've been doing my best to repent of sin 
to walk in the light and to help other people do the same. Not perfect, but pursuing. That's the, that's the idea. And I, the more that I think about this idea of heaven and hell, the, the more that it comes into focus that, you know, heaven is going to be a big worship party, right? And we're not going to be worshiping you, none of us. We're going to be worshiping Jesus. How cold and cruel would it be for God to subject someone who never wanted him in this life to eternity with him in the next? Do you see it? So the people who, who go to heaven are the people who see God wanted you, and you respond to that great love by wanting him back, and you get to enjoy that for all eternity. The people who don't go to heaven are the people who don't. It's not the people who, who, um, who just don't want God. It's the people who want to be God. And that's what the works of the flesh are describing uh, right here. The clear warning is this. There's no hope of assurance for the person who boldly, unapologetically, and unrepentantly lives in patterns of sin. That's what Paul's saying. Verse 22. Here's the desire. Here's like the goal line that we want to get here. But the fruit of the Spirit is, and let me tell you this, each fruit of the Spirit describes the same thing. It's Christ-likeness. Each fruit of the Spirit has what we would call a counterfeit, an imposter version of the fruit. And I'm going to do my best to expose these imposter versions while telling you what the, what the real fruit actually is. First of all, it is love. So love, this is serving one, uh, uh, one another or another person uh, for the sake of their highest, highest good and not your own. In other words, like you just see value in people because they bear the image of God, not because they can do you a favor, not because you've got some, some angle and that you're trying to work. Uh, and, and that's the counterfeit, guys. The counterfeit of, of the fruit of the spirit of love is conditional affection. And so the way it goes is I'm attracted to someone or I treat them well because of how they make me feel or because of what they might do for me. Then there is joy. So joy is basically this settled delight in God for who he is. So I look at God and I just say, God, you're beautiful. And before I view you as useful, I see you as beautiful. And uh, you see someone who sees Jesus as beautiful, you're going to be dealing with a joyful person. You know, they're, they're, they're not going to let the ebbs and flows, the highs and lows, devastate them because they've seen the beauty of Christ and they know they'll be with him forever. And this is the type of church that we want to be. But the counterfeit is this. It's elation or excitement based on blessings more than the blesser. This is a very moody person. They're up one day, they're down the other. Very circumstantial with their excitement. Then there's peace. So peace, this is a confidence and rest in the wisdom and control of God. A confident rest in the wisdom and control of God. That's what peace is. And so I don't have to be in control. But the, counter, the counterfeit to this is indifference. It's apathy. It's not caring. And then we see patience. This is another word for patience would be forbearance. That's an ability to face trouble without blowing up or giving up. Uh, you can actually take some knocks and take some hits in life, and it doesn't devastate your direction. You're going to continue to walk with Jesus. We need this. The counterfeit of, of patience would just be um, what we might call levity, like not caring enough to continue, uh, not finishing what you start, not fulfilling your commitments. Uh, verse, uh, and then we see kindness. This is When you think about kindness, think about serving others in a practical way that makes you vulnerable. That's, that's what kindness is. And it comes, it can only, spirit-born kindness can only come from a place of deep security. You have to be okay with people kind of knowing 
that you don't have it all together, but you also have to be okay with actually putting yourself in the shoes of another person and serving them in a way that's actually going to bless them and not just you. The counterfeit of this would be manipulative deeds for the sake of self-congratulation. Uh, then there's goodness. Uh, this is like basically think integrity. That's what this is. It's, it's being in private who you are in public, and that private and public self is actually very godly. Uh, the counterfeit of this would just be hypocrisy, being two-faced. Next, there's faithfulness. Uh, this is another word for faithfulness is loyalty. Another word for faithfulness, uh, this could be translated courage. It's to be utterly reliable and true to your word. Or as Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than this comes from the devil, the works of the flesh. The counterfeit of faithfulness is to peace fake. It's to pretend that you're in, but you're really not. It's to be loving, but not truthful. And, you, and, and the counterfeit to, to, to faithfulness is you do not have the chops to confront tough situations. Next is gentleness. Uh, this is humility, knowing your place in the world and not overestimating your place. We'll talk about this in a few, uh, next week, actually. Uh, then there's self-forgetfulness. Uh, that's what gentleness is. The counterfeit to this is just a subservient person. Um, basically, like, you walk around with this low-grade sense of I'm inferior to everybody, so I have to give everybody their will and, and their way. Uh, you look at this person, oh, they're gentle. It's like, no, no, they're, they're insecure uh, because they don't understand their value, and it's, it's different from being gentle. Uh, self-control, this is to pursue the important over the urgent, to actually be able to order your priorities in a way uh, that's faithful uh, and that's fruitful. Uh, the counterfeit to this is willpower. Just white-knuckling your way. You don't need the, the Holy Spirit to, to kind of walk in willpower because willpower, it, it ultimately, your kingdom come, your will, your will, not mine, be done on earth as it is in heaven. Willpower is a form of pride. And it's rooted in a need for control, and that's the counterfeit to self-control. Notice verse 23b, it says, against such things there is no law. In other words, you can never have too much of this. You don't have to legislate this because you, you could never, um, uh, basically a way to think, it is, think about it is no cap on the fruit of the Spirit. And so how does spiritual gro uh, growth happen? That's, that's the question. Um, well, how is Christ formed in us? How does this actually happen practically? Um, well, uh, Tim Keller, he, he gives four ways. Uh, that I think are really helpful. And basically, it's all rooted in the analogy, the language of Scripture. How does a, how does a fruit tree grow? That's how we grow spiritually. First of all, uh, the growth is gradual. Spiritual growth is gradual. It's going to happen over time. You wouldn't be able to see it overnight. But, you know, three years from now, you're following Christ faithfully. You are going to be more patient with the people who press your buttons. And you're like, three years ago, I didn't have that reserve. I, I didn't have that same power. That's the Holy Spirit. Uh, or some temptation arises, and you're like, I wasn't saying no to this three years ago. I wasn't saying no to this when I was in college, but now I am. That's, that's the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's the, the fruit of, of growth. It's gradual. It takes time, right? Uh, second, growth is inevitable. So we're saved by faith alone, but we're not saved by a faith that remains alone. We're not saved for a fruitless faith. From the beginning and throughout the Bible, God says, be fruitful and, and multiply. And what this forces us to do is ask the question, am I actually bearing fruit? If you're a Christian, you will bear fruit. If you're a Christian, it is inevitable. If the Holy Spirit is being welcomed and wanted into your life, then you're going to bear this, uh, this fruit. Uh, third, growth is internal. So back to the whole I love peaches thing. Like a peach does not grow because I tie it onto a tree, right? A, a peach grows because the branches and the tree is rooted in healthy soil 
that took root and is now bearing fruit. And similarly, the way that we bear fruit is not from the outside in with religion. Uh, it's from the inside out with the gospel. It's like I'm rooting my life, I'm rooting my identity in justification by faith in Jesus Christ. I am justified, I'm forgiven, my sin's been canceled, and I belong to Jesus. And that's an unconditional, uh, an unconditional gift. It's not based on, on my performance. Uh, lastly, for, uh, fourth, spiritual growth is proportional. And I want you to see this. Uh, Paul uses the word fruit, not the word fruits. And this is a really important observation. And the reason why is because each fruit is describing the same thing. You could say the fruit of the Spirit is Christ-likeness. You covered it. These are very descriptions of what Christ-likeness is. And so all of these, not some of these, are going to grow proportionally on the trees of our lives. Like, think about it. A peach tree does not grow apples. <laughs> yeah, it's it's going to grow peaches. Yeah, a tree that's rooted in the soil of the gospel is going to grow Christ-likeness, and Paul is animating our understanding of what that actually looks like. And you go through this, this, this list, and this is, what, this is why it's important, is because you might go through there and think, well, I'm good at that one, I'm not good at this one. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm good, but I'm not faithful. You know, I'm gentle, but I'm not very joyful. And like, you know, you might say, well, I'm, I'm a good person because uh, I'm, I'm, an, I'm a person of integrity because I tell it like it is, and I am in public who I claim to be in private because I'm from the north. It's like, no, no, you're... J- just because you, you, you take your Myers-Briggs and it spells J-E-R-K, that doesn't, that doesn't make you good. Let me be real with you. You're rude. Can I say it? I did. You, you're rude. And, and, and just, just because you're, you're up front about that rudeness doesn't make you a good person. But then, you know, uh, from those of us who are from the, the South might say, well, I'm a gentle person. It's like, no, you're not. You're passive-aggressive. You just you just don't have the chops to say what our friends from the north actually just come right out and say, and there's a <laughs> there's a big difference, a big difference between spiritual fruit and just your personal temperament. There I said it. So the last three verses, uh, let's keep going. Give two ways we can respond. I want to give these to you. Verse twenty four, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions. And desires. The first thing that we can do about this, how do we, how, how do we like get moving with spiritual growth? Is this be killing sin by the Spirit. Be killing sin by the Spirit. Notice that language, crucified the flesh. There's different pictures that describe the Christian life all throughout the Bible. So we're described as athletes who compete to win a prize. Uh, we're we're described as as soldiers who fight a good fight. We're described as farmers. Uh, who patiently await like the harvest. It's, it's kind of likened to this whole fruit analogy right here. Uh, we're described as children who need a lot of help, but who are loved and welcomed and wanted. Right here, we're described as executioners. How about that? Because what, what are we to be doing? Crucifying, killing sin by the Spirit. And the only times we see God condoning pedal to the metal violence in the Christian life is in relation to our sin. In other words, you don't try to tame it and like put it put it on a leash. You ever see those people like put a lion on a leash? Like this thing's gonna eat you, bro. Like what are you doing? We're like, well, John Owen he said, "Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you." Well, you go back to the beginning, Genesis four seven. Here's where we see it. God says, 
to Cain before he murdered his brother Abel. He says, Cain, uh, be on guard. Sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is for you. What does that mean? That means that sin wants to look really small and pounce really quickly, and in doing so, absolutely kill you. It did that to Cain. Is it doing that to you? Is, is it doing that to you because you're trying to tame it instead of trying to kill it? How do we kill sin by the Spirit? Number one, you need to remember who you are. It says, we belong to Christ Jesus. Here's what you need to see. The Spirit's job is to remind us of who God has made us. So Galatians 4.4, 4, the Spirit is deposited into our lives, and from that presence, we cry, Abba, Father. We remember who our dad is. We remember where our home is. We remember who our Savior, big brother is in Jesus. And so we live out of that identity because we remember who we are. Uh, you ever seen those Snickers commercial, commercials where it's like, you not, you're not you when you're hungry? Okay, for the Christian, you're not you when you're sinning. That's really, that's really not who you are. And this, this week, I want to invite you to say something like this. In Christ, I am a freed and forgiven child of God who's not missing out. Preach that to your sin. Preach that to the devil. This week, in Christ, I am a freed and forgiven child of God who's not missing out. So you've got to remember who you are. Next, you need to replace your sinful desires with the beauty of Christ. So here's, here's what I want you to see. We are designed to desire. We are pleasure seekers. It's in our nature. And your desires are not going to be so much erased as they are going to be replaced. So you're not going to get rid of that, that desire and that instinct to, to run toward the sinful nat nature and to feed the flesh, but what you can do is you can replace it and overpower it with a greater affection that draws you into things that are be beautiful instead of broken. You replace a broken desire, you don't erase the broken desire. And this is, this is another thing that the Spirit does, is He points our hearts to the surpassing beauty of Christ. You know, the reason we give in to sin is because we fail to gaze upon the beauty of Christ. And for a moment, we forget about it. And I just want to invite you, very practically, this week, would you do this? Would you look at the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5? Would you look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, and would you say, which is more beautiful? Because when you say that the fruit of the Spirit is beautiful, you're saying Jesus is beautiful. Because no one is more loving, no one is more joyful, no one has more peace, no one is more patient, no one is more kind, no one is more faithful, no one is more gentle, no one has more kindness or self-control than Jesus. You're saying Jesus is beautiful if you say that the fruit is beautiful. So, hey, invite, uh, invite God to replace those desires um, and to fill you with this fruit. Um, verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So the last way that we can get moving with this is keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. So this, here's what this means. This means that we don't ignore where God is leading us. So we don't say something like, uh, Spirit, you go ahead, I'll catch up. What we say is, Spirit, where you lead, I will follow. The cross before me. The world behind me, no turning back. No turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus. 
And the Holy Spirit, here's what you need to know. The Holy Spirit will meet you where you are, but he will never leave you where you are. He will lead you forward. He will bring you home. He's always spotlighting another step toward Christ-likeness. And here's what, what this looks like. You're here, and you're not a Christian. You've never transferred trust wholly and solely to Jesus Christ by faith. Here's what you need to understand. How do you keep in step with the Spirit? You, you take the first step. You, you repent of your sin. You believe in, in Jesus Christ. Uh, that he, he died because of you. He died instead of you. It's the great exchange. Here's what you do. You say, God, I'm going to give you my worst. That's my sin. God, I'm going to give you my best. That's myself. Uh, or, and and you, or excuse me, I'm, I'm going to give you my first. That's myself. And I'm going to give you my worst. That's my sin. And what God says is he says, I'm going to give you my best. And that's salvation. That's, uh, that's uh, the spirit. It's called the great exchange. It's the greatest deal that you could ever make. And so if you've yet to do that, that's, that's where you start. That's how you keep in step with the Spirit. That's how you kill sin. That's how you live a fruitful life. But others of you, um, you've already done that. You've already placed your faith in Jesus. And you're like, what for me? Well, hey, what is, what is your next step? What is, the, what, is that, what is the last thing that God told you to do? And did you do it? If not, will you do it? Maybe it's to open up your mouth and and share the good news of Jesus with your neighbor. Maybe it's to confess some sin and invite some accountability into your life. Maybe it's to move forward despite your fears and to stop running from commitment and, and, and to stop being more selfish than, than, than the Holy Spirit has called you to be in, in, in some area. But here's, here's the whole connection with all this. The greatest fruit tree in all of history was the cross. On the cross, Jesus models the fruit of the Spirit more than any other place that we could ever see. And, and, and who, what is the fruit? It's not what is the fruit, who is the fruit? It's Jesus. That's what we're, we're all really after. On the cross, Jesus was loving us. He was, he, he was joyful. He, was, he, he had a peace. He was patient. He was kind. He was gentle. He was faithful. He was self-controlled against all odds. And as we look to the, the fruit tree of the cross, we can become more like Christ. And I would just say, what is it that your family wants? What is it that your spouse wants? What is it that your kids, what is it that your roommate, what is it that Myrtle Beach, what is it that Conway is hungry for? It's this fruit. It's this fruit. There's no limit on how much of this is to be in our life. And the people who put the limits on it it's you and I. And here's what I want to do. I just want to pray that we would be the type of church that would bear this type of fruit. Let's pray.